The scripture reading for today comes from John seven fifty three through eight eleven. They each they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You can be seated, and at this time I'm going to invite Bob Crossland up to uh, preach this morning. Bob is a pastor at Grace South Bay, one of our sister churches, and he also serves on our temporary session. And uh, we did not coordinate outfits this morning. Same with Matt either. I don't know what's going on, but uh, uh, just by chance. Thank you, Bob, for (laughs) preaching this morning. I should have come in a mustache. Yeah, there we go. Got some laughs. Good morning, everyone. Uh, you probably seen me before. I've been here a few times. It's wonderful to be back. And, uh, and we'll be hanging out afterwards for the congregational meeting, so I look forward to spending some more time with you. Last month, I uh, read an essay by a woman who tells her story. She grew up in a fundamentalist Christian environment and fully embraced it. She was super smart. She went to a a Christian college. She was going to graduate at age 19 and then go to Yale for graduate school. So she was smart. She got involved with a guy, ended up uh, getting pregnant. So they decided to get married and make a go of having a family, which meant no grad school. She then recounts this. While I was pregnant, the elders at my fiancé's church wanted us to come down to the front of the sanctuary one Sunday morning after the service and confess that we had sinned by having premarital sex. Because I was not a member of that congregation, my fiancé asked if he could do it by himself. The elders said I needed to be a part of it, even though that denomination does not typically allow women to speak to an assembly of both men and women. They said that if we refused to do this, the ladies of the church might not be willing to throw us a baby shower. I felt so angry and humiliated and diminished. When my daughter was about a year old, I realized I couldn't bear for her to grow up there in that community. And I left religion immediately and without looking back, after trying my whole life to hold my faith at the center of my being in the world. Twenty years later, the rest of her essay does not have kind words for Christianity or the church. And if you asked a bunch of random people what words came to mind that they associated with Christians or church, one of the words frequently mentioned would be condemning. Now, in today's culture, shame and condemnation come from every direction, not just Christian. We dish it out in heaps 
and we hate it when it's heaped onto us. But what's interesting is that when you look at Jesus in this passage, you see the opposite of shame and condemnation. It's not what Jesus was about. He didn't shame and condemn the people in this passage, and he doesn't shame and condemn us. He shows people dignity, refusing to condemn them, and that's what enables real change. And so that's how we're going to look at this passage under those three headings, dignity, condemnation, change. First, for dignity, the authorities robbed a woman of her dignity to make her a pawn in their attempt to hurt Jesus. The setting here is Jerusalem. Jesus is teaching in the temple precincts, as many rabbis would do. It's a very public place. Starting in verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So the religious authorities in Jerusalem are trying to trap Jesus. They place him on the horns of a dilemma. This is the dilemma. Rome controlled Jerusalem. Only Roman authorities could carry out capital punishment. If Jesus says that she must be stoned, well, then they can frame him as a threat and an opponent of Rome, get him killed or imprisoned. If Jesus says not to stone her, well, now he looks soft on the blatant sin of adultery. He loses credibility as a rabbi. They seemingly have him trapped. So this is a contest of wits between Jesus and the authorities. But in the middle of this contest is a human being, a woman. They say that she's been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, does lay down the penalty for adultery to be death. But the punishment is for both parties, man and woman. Where was the man in this case? As was the situation in the rest of the Greco-Roman world, sexual rules were different for men and women. Women could only have sex with their husbands, but men could be unfaithful to their wives as long as that was with a prostitute or a slave or an unattached woman of lower rank. So promiscuous women were punished, promiscuous men were not. And the Bible pushes back against that inconsistency, as we'll see. Well, who was this woman? Well, given the convenient timing of finding her in the morning near the temple, it's possible these men took a nearby prostitute or a woman who was still technically married to one man but was now known as living with another. Either way, we should assume that this was not a dutiful housewife who got caught up in a passionate affair. This must be a woman living more on the margins of society. And to these opponents of Jesus, these scribes and Pharisees, she is not a human being. She is a prop. They can heap on her shame and indignity because she doesn't matter. It's about winning an argument against Jesus. They clearly don't care about this specific case of adultery because the man's not there. And the text says that they, they placed her in the midst, meaning she was put in the middle and everyone was surrounding her, looking at her. Imagine what was going through her mind. The fear, the shame, the sense of indignity. In this whole passage, she says two words. She never speaks up to defend herself. Now, if I were Jesus, I would have been enraged at these men, saying, who do you think you are? What are you doing? Where is the man in this case? 
You know this would be an illegal trial. And when was the last time someone in Israel was stoned for adultery? Already this practice of stoning adulterers had fallen out of use. There were not many, if any, stonings at this time. I would have shooed them away and told them to get lost. Well, Jesus does something totally different. Verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Again, imagine what this woman thought of that, of Jesus' words. Right? Perhaps she was hoping Jesus would rescue her and come to her defense. Instead, he gives the condition under which they can stone her. Which seems, and then he, you know, nonchalantly goes back to writing in the dirt, right? In that first moment, this must not have been very comforting for this woman. But it did work, verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. These scribes and Pharisees, they didn't care about this woman. She had two strikes against her. She was a woman and she was a sinner. And telling them that they needed to be sinless to condemn her would have been laughable. Of course, no one is sinless. And executing the law does not depend on human beings remaining sinless. This should not have tripped up Jesus' opponents. So why did they leave silently? Over the centuries, scholars have honed in on the the comment that Jesus was writing on the ground in the dirt. This passage doesn't say what he was writing, and it's the only time in all the Gospels that Jesus is pictured writing. But the author John draws our attention to it twice, which means it's important. What was he writing? Well, we don't know for sure. Maybe the Ten Commandments, or just the Tenth Commandment against coveting your neighbor's wife. Or warning men about adultery in Proverbs 5, or the prostitute in Proverbs 7. Or the command to rejoice in the wife of your youth found in Proverbs and Malachi. Or from that same passage in Malachi, how God hates divorce, which was very, very common at the time, more common than in our time. Or the general indictment of all Israel for adultery against God found in prophets like Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. The point is, Jesus wrote something that convicted these men. That made them realize there was little difference between them and her. The men walk away. Jesus finally addresses the woman. He stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. The woman gets to declare the verdict of her accusers. No one condemns me. Jesus invites this woman to discover her own humanity that she is not condemned by her community. She is not so different, so untouchable, as she and others might have thought. Jesus not only defeats his opponents in their matching of wits, he begins the process of restoring this woman whole back to society. He could have dealt with this in any number of ways. And being the John Wayne hero, as I would have liked to have been, wouldn't have been the best. He loved her well seeking her best, showing her dignity. That was only the beginning. Jesus wants to deal with this question of condemnation, my second point. Verse 11, Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. 
If this woman was guilty of adultery, why doesn't Jesus condemn her? Does he not care about adultery or sexual immorality? On the contrary, when when his disciples hear what Jesus has to say about adultery and divorce in Matthew 19, his disciples conclude that no one should get married in order to avoid committing adultery. Throughout the Gospels, when Jesus discusses marriage and sex, he comes down on the most conservative side of Judaism of his time. Marriage is for life between one man and one woman. There's no no no-fault divorce. There's no sex outside of or before marriage, not even lust. And yet, whenever Jesus comes across someone in sexual sin, he has incredible compassion for them and shows them dignity that their culture withholds. He isn't permissive. He isn't affirming in their choices, but he is safe. He's a safe place for sinners living in a world of shame which might be why his opponents brought him this woman. He had a reputation for being soft on the sexually immoral or sexually broken. But it's clear that Jesus isn't okay with adultery. He says so here. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He's calling her to change. He's saying to her, you are not a prop. You have moral agency and accountability. And that's why he doesn't condemn her. He wants to restore her humanity and see her change. And that doesn't happen under condemnation. In the New Testament, this word condemn means to judge and sentence someone to execution. Case closed, story over, verdict rendered, sentence pronounced. It's the word that was used for what would happen to Jesus on Good Friday, sentenced by the authorities to crucifixion. That's condemn. No appeal. When you communicate condemnation, you communicate to that person, there's no hope left for you. No more second chances. You are who you are. It's not that you did something wrong. You are something wrong. But Jesus came to change who we are and change our future. Condemnation rules that out. That's why he says to the woman, I do not condemn you. And he says to us, I do not condemn condemn you. So if Jesus refuses to condemn people in the middle of their story, why do we shame and condemn people? Speak to and think of them as permanently wrong, damaged, unworthy. The week I was first writing this sermon, uh, I just started saying this to myself, even sometimes out loud, I do not condemn you. I do not condemn you. That same week, last month, my my family went to the dentist for the first time in two and a half years, right? Because of COVID, it's two and a half years of not going to the dentist. One of my daughters is 11 and a half years old. She came home with a mild cavity, just one. And my response was like, you have a cavity? What's the matter with you? All you have to do is brush and floss. It's not that hard. But it's been two and a half years, and there's been a pandemic, and she's a kid. But I was aghast. A few minutes later, I came to my senses, and we were sitting down at the dinner table, and I just said to her, I do not condemn you. I'm sorry. How often do we condemn people? It is not our right. It is not our job. It is not God's will for us to condemn people. 
whether we do it as individuals or collectively as a church. Practice saying it about the people that you have the harshest judgment for. People who run red lights, I do not condemn you. People stealing catalytic converters and packages off of front porches, I do not condemn you. People getting vaccinated or not getting vaccinated, I do not condemn you. People enforcing mask rules or not enforcing mask rules, I do not condemn you. Addicts, I do not condemn you. Racists, I do not condemn you. Socialists, I do not condemn you. People attracted to the same sex, I do not condemn you. People ruining their family with adultery, I do not condemn you. Practice it. Even these scribes and Pharisees here, who I would have condemned, you would have condemned, Jesus doesn't. He lets the word of God convict them, right? Doesn't even look up at them. And they go on their way with the hope that they too might be changed. We do not have the right to condemn. We are chocked full of sin. You are the greatest sinner you know. Now, I do not condemn you does not mean I affirm you. It does not mean you're great just the way you are. You be you. We can condemn words and actions. We can disagree, and we can call people to change and repentance. That is most definitely the church's role. But that process of change starts by showing people dignity and affirming their humanity, not condemning them. And that's what so much of Scripture is about. Change. Right? What Jesus says, go and from now on sin no more. Change. That's Jesus' command to this woman, and this is his command to us. But we have to get the order right. Our culture gets it backwards. Our culture communicates one of two things. Either you're already condemned and there's no hope left for you, or you better perform, you better change, you better shape up, or you will be condemned. Isn't this how we are made to feel about education, about parenting, about career, about health, about morality? Perform. Justify yourself or else you are condemned. Are you feeling condemnation in a particular area of your life? Jesus says to all of us, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you hear the difference? all the difference in the world. That's the difference between heaven and hell. It is the secret to change. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Emmanuel Macron, the, the president of France last month, said in anger about the unvaccinated, I really want to make life miserable for them. Right? And he used a crasser French word. But do you think that's going to work? Is he going to get people to change their minds about being vaccinated? Monica Gandhi is a doctor and professor up at UCSF. She's been saying as long as we've been dealing with COVID, shame and judgment will not work. You want more people to wear masks? You want more people to social distance? You want more people to get vaccinated? Don't use shame. Don't condemn. It won't work. And for all of us, we can have that attitude of, what's wrong with you? When will you get this right? Stop sinning. Just this kind of shame and condemnation. We say it first and foremost to ourselves, and then we say it to and about others. But Jesus says to us, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
when we are shown dignity, when we are reminded of our humanity, we want to do better and be better. We want to change. Like Paul says in Romans, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not his judgment and harshness. It is grace that empowers obedience, and that's a one-way street. Obedience can never earn grace by definition. We don't change in order to get love. Instead, we are loved. Now we can change. If you are a Christian, what motivates your desire to change and honor God? Is it God's love? Is it his kindness? Or is it his condemnation you feel or fear? You don't do enough. You're not good enough. You don't love enough. You don't know enough. You don't try enough. You aren't enough. Sure, maybe Jesus gives us a pass on the first thousand mess-ups, but what about the next 10,000? When does his I do not condemn you run out? And do you feel like it's run out for you? The uh, Chinese communist government actually uses this story about Jesus in one of their law and ethics textbooks. It says this, Once upon a time, Jesus spoke to an angry crowd that wanted to kill a guilty woman. Of all of you, he who can say he has never done anything wrong can come forward and kill her, Jesus said. After they heard this, the crowd stopped, and when the crowd retreated, Jesus raised a stone and killed the woman and said, I am also a sinner, but if the law can only be executed by a spotless person, then the law will die. Obviously not the gospel story, right? But the Chinese communists are wrestling with a real dilemma. What good is a law or a standard that none of us can reach? And how can we hold anyone accountable to it if we have no hope of fulfilling it ourselves? But the good news says Jesus was that spotless person. So goodness and righteousness, the law does live. Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law, so he is the one who can execute it. But in the greatest, most surprising twist in history, the law executed this spotless person, Jesus, so that sinners like us could live. I hope the woman who was singled out in this passage, I hope she heard and even witnessed the rest of the story. Right? We, we should assume she was in Jerusalem at the time. Jesus allowed himself to be captured by these same authorities. They lied about him in an illegal trial, and he did not speak up to defend himself. He was condemned to die as a blasphemer. He was put in the midst of these men and beaten. He was put in the midst of Roman guards, stripped naked and assaulted. Then he was nailed to a wooden pole to die a torturous death, stripped of all dignity and humanity. The spotless one who can execute the law with precision does not condemn us. Instead, he takes our shame and condemnation upon himself. And it is enough to cover over all of our not enoughs. It is God's love and grace and kindness that will change you, not shame and threats. So if you want to change, go to God's love and grace and kindness in Jesus first and always. You are not condemned. Fifty years still fighting the same fight? 
keep starting with God's love and grace and kindness. You are not condemned. And you are told that specifically in Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you have to be sinless in order to condemn someone? Yes. Only Jesus can give a final, full verdict over someone's whole life and existence. Since by God's grace we are not condemned, we will not do any condemning. Take the worst thing about you, that which you are most ashamed of. Maybe it's adultery or some other kind of sexual immorality. Maybe it's some kind of violence or assault, theft, abortion, addiction, failing the people you love, failing yourself. Do you hear Jesus say, I do not condemn you? Because that is what he says. In fact, he says more. He says, I was condemned for you. I took your condemnation because I love you and I see who you are truly meant to be. Our culture says behave or face condemnation. But the gospel says, I do not condemn you. You are loved. Now you can go obey. Go and sin no more. You are truly free in God's love. Everything twisted made straight. Every wrong made right. Every sin turned to good. Every mistake filled in. Every failure turned to victory. Every tear wiped from our eyes. Go and sin no more. You're already free and you're already loved. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you came and walked among us and you loved us. Uh, You took upon us our weakness uh, and our shame, uh, and you bore our sin on the cross so that you could free us, so that you would not have to condemn us. So we ask that you would help us to hear and believe that today. Help us to walk this week knowing that we are loved, we are not condemned, uh, and therefore not condemning others, but instead living new lives, new lives in your spirit, uh, empowered by your grace and your love. Thank you so much for this good news. Would you help us to believe it and live in it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.